It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 156. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. What's the weather in Denver today? The weather forecast. Let me look out the window. <laughs> That's a nice, it's a nice day today. But, you know, we, we're between snows. We've been getting regular snows about once a week. And uh, so we're a few, you know, right in between some. You were a little worried about not getting any snow normal, you know, during the yeah, time earlier. Yeah. 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 So we've, yeah. we've had, we haven't caught up, I'd say, but we've had, you know, good January and February of snow. Knocking on wood. It's been relatively dry here. We actually had a little bit of, of a, a glowy thing in the sky, which is unusual for this time of year. So. Oh, yes. And I think um, our house actually borders on a very common walking trail. So we uh, we see lots and lots of people walking their dogs uh, whenever the sun comes out. And uh, it's 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 actually good to see. So cool. um, a, a, it's kind of an update, a little bit of a discussion. Um, we've been talking off and on for the last few episodes about the whole Spotify thing. And then we talked about streaming audio services and um, I was surprised last week to realize that I had YouTube Music, um, mm-hmm. and and I think you were surprised by that too, since you were also <laughs> subscribing to YouTube Premium. Yeah, um, I realized this week that I had yet another uh, streaming service where this time streaming is kind of in quotes, and I have had for some time. Um, it's something called Plex, P L E X. It's Plex.tv, and what it, gosh. I don't even really know how to describe how it started. What it originally was attempting to do was be a media server in your home. So you could uh, rip music and movies and run a server in your, um, you know, on your PC or on your Mac or, or even on a Linux box, actually, which I had been doing for a while. Uh, and basically, you can then stream, quote unquote, uh, the content you own, the content you have on your system to all the other machines, whatever machines you happen to have in your home. And in fact, there was even a way to uh, access it externally. Now, it's been, I want to say, a couple of years since I have actually looked at it. And I did not that long ago. Um, I did some rejiggering of the, the servers that I run in my basement, and I moved my old uh, Mac Pro. Uh, the paint can downstairs. So it basically acts as a file server. It's got something like 10 or 12 external USB drives connected to it right now. But one of the things it does is it's running this Plex media server. As a quick aside, I may say Plesk every once in a while. Hmm. That is me misspeaking. And that's because Plesk, which is a server management tool, is something that I used heavily for a couple of years. And it seems to be stuck in my brain. I catch myself saying it when I really mean Plex, P-L-E-X. Hmm. Anyway, uh, so I, you know, it suddenly dawned on me that hmm, I wonder if that can do anything. So I fired it up. Uh, there's a raft of stuff. First of all, they are they have an integration with Tidal. So if you are a Tidal music streaming service, then it integrates really, really well with Plex. Well, what does that mean? Because Plex has a website and it's got a web interface that basically allows you to hook up to a bunch of now free content that they stream. I'm not sure what their back end looks like, but they have some video content. They've got some audio content um, that is free. And I'm sure it's the it's the usual, you know, 
how do I want to put this without being without really trying to offend some of these providers? But very often the uh, the free video channels are like reruns of shows that aired twenty or thirty years ago. Yeah, you know, it's it's free for a reason, right? Uh, but uh, and at the same time, you can stream your own content, the content you happen to own. But they've also come up with uh, Plex Amp. P-L-E-X-A-M-P, which I'm assuming is a takeoff on Winamp, the very popular, very old uh, Windows music player. And it is a new spiffed up interface for doing all of this. So the bottom line here is, and what I've been doing for the past couple of days since I just hooked this up over the weekend, is um, I have been streaming my own music from my own server in the basement. And I have not hooked up the title because title, uh, I'm already paying for like three or four different music hmm. services. So I don't necessarily yeah. need to pay uh, title for any of th- Theirs is actually one of the pricier ones, but the reason it's pricey is because it's apparently exceptionally high quality audio for what, everything that they produce. But the bottom line is I've been using this lately and uh, two things. I, I, for many years, as I'm sure, I know you may have been as well, uh, I purchased CDs. And uh-huh. I have a big box of CDs down in my basement. And several years ago, right. I ripped all of the CDs into MP3 files. So I've got a big collection of MP3 files of all this music that I own. Uh, and with the advent of streaming music, that almost became redundant because while you're using Spotify, there's actually no reason not to, you know, to Spotify has it all anyway, right? Uh, pretty much. So the idea is that all of that stuff fell into disuse, but I still had it on my server and I still had it uh, connected up to the Plex server. Um, I was shocked at how much music I have. <laughs> I've got buckets and buckets of MP3 files for all sorts of stuff. I'm missing, you know, like maybe the last five or 10 years worth of new music because I haven't been buying CDs and I haven't been buying MP3s, uh, which actually leads to another interesting discussion we should have at some point. But the point here is that for those of you that, like me, have a large existing collection of your own music uh, that you have ripped as mp3 or probably other audio formats sitting on a disc in your uh, in your home on a machine somewhere you might want to take a look at plex.tv now the nice thing for me is that like i said i also have several of my movies that have been ripped uh, i've got um you know i'll just use 2001 a space odyssey as as my canonical example um, you know, if I wanted to, it's it's sitting on a machine in my basement, but if I want to watch my copy of 2001, um, I just fire it up in Plex and I can watch it right here on my screen. So it's a pretty cool piece of technology. It's been around for a while. Um, it was originally recommended to me, and it may have been mentioned actually in a larger audience that you were involved in, um, by a, a friend of the podcast, Alan Wyatt, uh, for uh, who does uh, Word tips and Excel tips and a bunch of other tips. Um, he does it because uh, his internet connectivity wasn't that great, and he had a you know a family that wanted to watch a, lo- a large number of things, and this turned out to be a great server-based solution for his use case as well. So anyway, I just thought I wanted to I wanted to mention that as yet another alternative for streaming. 
Mm. Yeah, I, well, I've heard of Plex. Of course, it's been around as an app for a long, long time, predating lots and lots of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I used to have a fairly large collection of CDs and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I they're long forgotten um, because well, partially because Apple did this thing called iTunes Match. They still do this thing called iTunes Match, where you can actually uh, take your ripped stuff that you had in the uh then itunes app now music app and it will match them and make them basically like your own streaming cloud service with just the songs that you had and if you have apple music they actually include that same thing inside apple music so you know it's kind of weird it's like i can see the stuff i've got uh, that i had on cd in my apple music collection there's a difference though i can download those songs so if there's a, like, if I had a, a song on an album that I had, I ripped it, it matched it mm-hmm. and I have it now in the music app. It shows up. If I look at the cloud status property, it shows mm-hmm. up as a matched right. and I can download the MP3 or, you know, AAC file from that. Whereas I can't do that from a purely stream stream oh, really? song. Yeah. Interesting. Because it recognizes that I Oh yeah, I know you, you own this on CD. You already have it physically. So yeah, mm-hmm. sure. It's interesting. Um, Amazon music did that. I don't, I don't know if they're still doing that or not. They did that for a while. The mm-hmm. neat thing about what Amazon did was that uh, once you uploaded, I think you upload your music, but then they would put it in your library, but they would put in their copy of the music instead of yours, yeah. which typically means you got, Higher bitrate, better yeah, quality. It's the same thing, yeah. And that yeah. result was a better quality. So you could have a, a really crappy MP3 of of a song that because you didn't know what you were doing when you were ripping things, and all of a sudden you got you know the best quality there is uh, available to download. Yep. Exactly, which is my situation now. Uh, I have many of those songs. Most of them probably are lossless, whereas uh, well, it course, certainly yeah. wasn't when I got it off of the D, uh, off of the CD. Right. So. Hey, okay, right. thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's a question for, and I honestly, it just it just popped to mind because yeah. one of the discussions that uh, comes up whenever we start talking about the various streaming services, and it became very, very public when people were starting to talk about Spotify mm-hmm. uh, compared to um, uh, Tidal, compared to Apple Music, compared to YouTube Music, is how much money do the streamers, the people that mm. actually produce, how much money do the musicians actually get? And it was pointed out to me that while YouTube has a tremendous amount of, of music in their library, they're actually from way down on the low end of how many plays it takes for a, a music owner to actually make a buck. So yeah. um, I was curious if you have any sense for what's the best way to make sure that the musicians are getting the money I want them to? There's actually a, boy, I was looking at an article, uh, I think with our discussion last week that actually listed mm-hmm. all the amounts. Um, and Does that in, but did, it include, did it include direct purchase? In other words, I mean, for example, with Amazon, I can uh, purchase it in the sense that I can add it to my streaming library, or I can still buy the MP3s for download. Right. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, this was purely dealing with streaming. Um, streaming. Yeah. 
so I mean, I'm not I'm not coming up with the bookmark here, but um, you know, I I know when I looked at that list, uh, Spotify was down right at the bottom, um, and Apple Music was up uh, higher, but there was like you know, title was you know higher than everybody else but it's also a more expensive service with more limited library. And, you know, the conclusion of the article I was happy to see was that Apple music was the best deal because they paid the artists more than Spotify, mm-hmm. but they also were reasonably priced and had a fairly large library. So if you, you know, wanted to kind of like say, I still want a good service, <laughs> you know, with all the music, mm-hmm. but I don't want the artists to get ripped off. Then, you know, Apple music was a good one looking here. I mean, there's various ones that come up and I don't know, I can't verify the authenticity of any right. of the numbers this quickly, but you know, it looks like Spotify's down. Apple music's like twice, twice that, uh, title is maybe three times the Spotify amount. The interesting thing I noticed about the title plans is, of course, there's a free plan, there's a basic plan, there's a premium plan, but then there's like a premium plan plus where what what you do is you pay 10% more and title basically says, okay, that 10% goes directly to musicians. So it's it's almost a way of, of tipping the musicians, if you will, right? Yeah. Um, which I thought was an interesting approach. Like you said, it's the most expensive plan of of all of the streaming plans, but um, it was just an interesting observation that they had this other model as well to try and entice people to uh, uh, to to pay the uh, the musicians. I mean, and this article I was reading that I can't remember now. You know, one of the things it talked about was the fact that you know b- before an artist, you would have to purchase the album to right. listen, right? So you'd have to go out there and get it, and then they would get a much bigger chunk of that. Mm-hmm. money from a purchase uh, than they would by streaming. But of course, my argument's always been that, you know, I listen to a lot of music that I wouldn't have purchased because I didn't even know it was something I would like, right? right? I'm constantly trying out new things. So, you know, there's a lot of artists that get some fraction of a penny from me sure, because I listen to their song once or twice, and maybe they're getting several pennies from me if I listen a bunch of times. Um, whereas, I just, it's, if I have to walk into a store and maybe walk out with two new CDs, like maybe I would have back before all this, right. um, they wouldn't have made the cut, you know, it would have been those two and probably would have been a lot of times would have been from an artist that I already knew. And I would have picked out the CD based on that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wouldn't have liked the album or it, maybe you would have been fine, but I would listen to it like twice and then, okay, add it to my collection. Whereas streaming wise, I could get surprised by a group I've never heard of. Right. And fine, I'm, you know, they're part of my regular music rotation for the next few weeks. It's interesting. The scenario that I envision, um, I'm not certainly not uh, saying that we need to do away with streaming. I think you're right. Streaming yeah. is wonderful for discovery. It really is. But uh, and so are like streaming and, and not necessarily streaming in the sense of, OK, I'm going to go listen to Led Zeppelin today or I'm going to go listen to yeah. Moody Blues today. I'm going to listen to like what I was, what was I listening to earlier today? The today's upbeat channel, right? Because then they don't give you your musicians or your, your, uh, your content creators. They give you a selection of popular ones of things you may never have heard of that approach is uh, I think really, really good for discovery. What I'm interested in is, okay, great. I've latched on to a musician. I love their music. I want to listen to it more. I want to reward them. Um, in the past, you're right. The, the, the uh, one way to do that would be to buy the physical CD. Uh, 
I, or today, I, maybe the way is to buy the, um, the the MP3 downloads, say from Amazon. I don't know if the math works still the same way for that kind of a thing. Uh, the other approach, of course, is well, then you know, if you really want to reward somebody, go find them on the internet, buy their merch, buy directly from them if they offer things, that kind of stuff. But I'm just sort of trying to trying to get a sense for what the ecosystem is these days and um, uh, where where the money's been flowing lately, because clearly streaming has turned it all into quite the turmoil. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's confusing and it's hard to, it's hard to know. Like, I mean, I don't know. I, it, you can't, you, the, all the music I listen to, it's like, yeah, I, I can't go out and buy it, like buy merch. And I don't want really want merch at all, right. but and I, you know, I just, I can't go out and say, well, I've listened to that a couple of times. I'll buy this you know, CD. So I'll be back to buying CDs at the rate I was before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I say that artists definitely make less money from me now, but I'm also paying a lot less, like $120 a year is, you know, which I started with Spotify years ago, mm-hmm. switched over to Apple music. I, you know, if you could look at a chart of the amount of money I spent on music per year, Right. You know, you have to go back to when I was a teenager and the number, even though I didn't make much, it was still over a thousand dollars a year easily. Right. Mm -hmm. That was like Mm -hmm. my hobby buying vinyl. And it it probably, you know, went up and down like a little seismograph up and above a thousand dollars a year easily, uh, all the way to the point where I started with Spotify originally, and then suddenly plummeted down to $120 a year, $10 a month. And it's just flatlined since then. So I've saved tons of money. I've spent a lot less money. Right. And so it isn't, shouldn't be surprising that artists have make, made less money from me because I've been spending less money too. It's not I like- wonder, I wonder though, I, I think part of the, the confusion though is that uh, there, there's two different distributions that have changed fairly dramatically. One is I think more people are spending money on music. Yeah. In other words, more people are signed up to Spotify than we're spending a thousand dollars a month on, yeah. on music, right? Um, and more musicians are getting it. And I, it, that's not to say that they're getting a lot. Clearly, that's part of the part of the issue here. But right. more musicians are getting a, a slice of a pie that perhaps they wouldn't have been able to earlier. Um, so it's like I say, that's why the, the math here is really convoluted and really. To, to be honest, interesting. And if you really are interested in in rewarding a musician, it's kind of interesting to understand what the best way to do that might be. I, I'm interested in like knowing more about why do new artists still seem to follow the old paths? Because I hear existing artists complain all the time that labels are horrible, that publishers are horrible, that the right. everything is just horrible. And um but then I see a new artist and, you know, usually you'll see them say on YouTube or TikTok or, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere where they're, they're, they're just publishing the stuff themselves. And then all of a sudden they're really excited because they signed a deal. I was like, well, wait a minute. Why did you sign a deal? Right. I mean, I look at a YouTube video. I'm like, you have 2 million views on this video. Uh, you know, you could go to, you know, Apple and I assume Spotify and I definitely know Bandcamp and other ones. And you could just do it all yourself, have a friend help you. Like you don't need to. Now they may, I don't know, there might be other advantages, uh, but it just seems to me, it's like, you've just signed away half 90%. I don't know. Of, I don't know. You, you generated the entire 
audience there to get a label interested in you, uh, is it really worth it to sign up? Why right. not just do right. it on your own? I don't know. The, the same argument applies to publishing in general, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's you know, if, Books, if, uh, if, if, if you are, if you can yeah. successfully self-publish a book, which is absolutely possible, why would you sign up for um, a big name publisher other than being able to perhaps slap the big name publisher's name on your spine, on the spine I mean, of your I, book? I don't know. I, um, so, I yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I, I guess there's, you know, if, if your goal is to be big time is to be Taylor Swift or whatever, you know, really big time, then you're, you know, probably your best path lies again with an actual label and all of that. But, you know, 99% don't get there. So if you're going to be in the 99% of the, of the somewhat successful artists that don't get there, mm -hmm. it would seem to me not signing with a label gives you more of a chance of making a living or even going well beyond making a living uh, at what you're doing than signing with the label and having them, you know, uh, pull all that stuff from you, especially artists today. It, it seems to me, maybe I'm really wrong on this, but it seems to me that a big difference is that a, a music artist today knows how to record themselves. You know, you've got sure. your MacBook yep. pro or your yep. Yep. Windows it's way easier than it's ever you've been. Got, yeah. You got yeah. your mic, you've got your, you know, you know how to use logic or whatever software you've got. Right. You're playing around, you've recorded stuff, you're uploading to SoundCloud, you're uploading to YouTube and mm -hmm. whatever, you know how to do that stuff. Whereas, yeah. Okay. Years and years ago, you didn't have any of the equipment you needed and you didn't have any of the experience. You know how to play your guitar and you had to sing. And that was it. And you needed somebody else to record you. It doesn't right. seem like it's the case anymore. And right. it doesn't even seem like it's the case that you need, you don't even need somebody to help publicize you at the beginning. You could, you know, th these people I'm talking about that are, I hear, oh, they've just signed with the label. They already had a big following. That's how right. I saw them in the first place is they, you know, got shown to me on TikTok or YouTube or something. And because they had millions of people following them already. So they, they've done all this work already all up front. I don't know. It's interesting that, that also um, Patreon was yeah. ultimately created to, I'll say, solve this very problem, right? It was, it, it was generated, it was created as a way for people to be able to support the artists they care about directly. Now, obviously it's expanded dramatically beyond that, mm. uh, but the artist that started it all, Pomplamoose, uh, is still there, still doing well. And I have no idea how much money they're getting every month, but it's a healthy chunk. And I know a lot of artists are getting a fair chunk of money through direct support from patrons through something like Patreon. Uh, I know there are musicians that I support through Patreon simply because of that. Um, it's interesting because they're not publishing a lot of, of, uh, albums, so to speak, right? There's not a lot of music to be purchased, right? but you still want to be able to support their work. And to be honest, at that level, at the individual level, uh, merchandise like t-shirts and mugs and all the random stuff, you and I both know that the amount of money that actually makes it to the, mm. uh, to the, to the person who's represented or selling it or whatever is actually very small uh, compared to the price of say the mug. Uh, so it's yeah. much, much easier uh, to make sure that, you know, when you give something through Patreon uh, or whatever other service they might be using, that the only thing that's really getting taken from them is credit card processing fees and a little bit of overhead, but not much. It's a, it's actually a much, much better percentage. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. As you and I both know. Yep. <laughs>
So I hear you may have had an experience this week. Uh, yeah. So uh, this is an interesting story. Um, Apple introduced a year or two ago. Um, they, they've always had Apple Care Plus, right? You know, originally it was Apple Care and then Apple Care Plus. And it's, you know, just another way of saying a warranty. And they, um, the idea is you break your iPhone or whatever, um, and you have that extra coverage, then, you know, it would cost you nothing or, or somewhat cheap, like a deductible amount, you know, like for a screen replacement or something. And they, they introduced another level of it called theft and loss protection, specifically for the iPhone, because it's very common. You carry this little object around with you and it goes with you everywhere and having it stolen or having it lost um, is something that could happen. Um, so they offered that basically insurance. So you know, Apple Care Plus is warranty. Apple Care Plus theft and loss protection is insurance on top of the warranty because that's really what it is when you've lost it or it's been stolen. It's insurance, not a warranty. So I had my first experience with that. <laughs> I've only ever used theft and loss protection on one device out of all the things I've purchased. And that was a recent iPhone by a family member, a family member I know that gets out and about much more than anybody else. And um, I thought, well, you know, the chances of losing the iPhone in that situation are much higher. And I kind of weighed that against uh, the cost of the theft and loss protection, uh, the chance, you know, the gambling on whether it would be lost or not, and how much trouble it would be if that happened, and decided to go for it. Mm -hmm. And it paid off <laughs> because yes, I think it was, a, you know, whatever it was extra 200 bucks or something. Um, the, the iPhone was indeed lost and or stolen. Notice I, I can't really tell you we which really one. Which. Okay. It's interesting. So, um, and so I used it. So I guess the first part of it is, is how did it work? Well, it worked out fairly well. It, there were hiccups, but the hiccups in using it didn't actually get in the way with an extremely positive result, which was that the phone was basically replaced in a little over or less than 72 hours. Okay. Like new phone cool. in hand yeah. working, right? That's really good. Yeah. And so that I'm happy with that. It didn't go perfect. Some of the website stuff didn't quite work like error messages and stuff. Um, and it was very, and it's still actually, if I go to look at my claim, it says waiting approval. We'll let you know when it's approved and we'll let you know when it ships. Well, you did already <laughs> a week ago. You let me know that it, actually, I didn't ever knew that it was going to be shipped. I just got a FedEx notification and the FedEx notification didn't even identify what it was. It came, was coming from a small town that I, when I looked up the small town, the first hit that came up was Apple opens massive new warehouse in <laughs> this small town. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, that's a clue. Yeah, it's a clue. So, so it arrived, it worked, and it was it's great. Except that you know, just the the process was kind of weird. Uh, but have to be happy with it because the result. You know, in the end, I'd rather the process be a little weird and have some hiccups and get the phone really fast right. than have the process be beautiful but have to wait <laughs> like two weeks for the phone. Right? And right. They 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 got it right where it counts. Yeah. Um, the the odd thing was I still don't really understand what happened to the phone because I have the phone right here on my desk, that lost and stolen phone. How did it end up on my desk? That's kind of a weird mystery. 
it was definitely missing one night. It was Saturday night. It went missing at some point. Too late to do anything about it Saturday night. It was recognized as missing. Sunday morning, it was basically assumed that it would be somewhere where this person was. Calls were made. Hey, it's my iPhone there. And nope, couldn't find it. Okay. So the iPhone isn't where it was supposed to be. Uh, now it's not a simple, just like, oh, I'll just pick it up. It's more of a, uh, we need to find it. So uh, the find my iPhone thing was used to locate it. Mm-hmm. And the play a sound thing was used to make it audible right. so that it could be located. What seems to have happened is as soon as I played a sound, the phone went offline. And that's kind of weird because it wasn't offline up until that point. And suddenly it went offline. The only reason I knew it was offline was because it says that located at this location at this time. And the location was always the same. The time would actually update, you know, to be this time. All of a sudden it started showing that it was five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago. Hey, it hasn't called home. It hasn't pinged the location thing since we played that first sound. That's suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> um, iPhones, and this model is one of them, are supposed to have this thing where um, it's it pings home even if you turn it off. Right. Um, so it couldn't have been as simple as somebody turning it off. But, but what, you had a location for it, didn't you? It did. Unfortunately, it was in a building. Uh, it was in a, I'll tell you, a college dormitory, right? Okay. Okay. Lots yeah, of yeah, people. Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> lots of people. Yep. Not a, not an easy thing, and limited access, right? You couldn't can't go into individual rooms, can't you know whatever. Right. So, could not be located. No idea what was going on. Very Doesn't strange. Seem like somebody would have a Faraday cage with them to throw. It yes, well, Faraday cage. You know, immediately what popped into my mind <laughs> was like the only logical explanation is somebody had a Faraday cage handy, stuck the phone inside of it, right? And maybe absent that, a metal box. That approximates a Faraday cage. A microwave right? would do. Yeah, there you go. Um, or a safe. Right. And college dorms actually have not safe, but they're kind of like money boxes. You know, they're like not really good safes, but right, you can right. still, you know, get some. So maybe in one of those, I don't know. Seem really, but any of the, any explanation I would come up with always had some sort of nefarious thing. It's like, why would you do that? Right. <laughs> if you're up to no good, is why you would do that. Exactly. Um, I've always assumed that when you see those little shops or those cars that drive by and they say like iPhone repairs, new screen, $99. Yes. That sometimes when you get a new screen, it's bought legitimately. And sometimes that screen is recycled out of a a phone. Um, Maybe a phone that is like this, that, you know, it's basically because you know, nobody else can use it. They've got it. It's, you know, good security on those. So you can't right. just reset it and use it, but you can take it apart and use the parts. Right. So I thought, well, maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe somebody who knows how to get things done knows that they can get a quick 50 bucks right? or hell, just maybe 20 bucks by just taking a phone like this and uh, turning, going to one of these shops and saying, Hey, I found this. It's, you know, and the, and the person just handing them $20 and say, okay, thanks. thanks. And, you know, and then they know that, Hey, the next time I need to repair an iPhone 12, instead of a $60 replacement part, I just I have a $20 replacement part right here. 
But that's not what happened, obviously, because what happened was after I did the insurance claim, after I went and activated the erase the iPhone thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it came online again, it would instantly, the first thing it would see is, oh, I'm supposed to be erased. And it would erase itself and lock itself permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, after I did that, um, there was no turning back, right? The phone's going to be dead if it ever turns up. Right. Uh, 24 hours later, the phone turned up with a really suspicious story of somebody that nobody knows, you know, no, no, not like, you know, you have a friend of a friend of a friend, right. right, right. This was like a f- nobody's friend. Right. <laughs> um, Apparently they, for a reason. <laughs> some, some said that they saw a text message on the phone that it, that had a name. So they saw it on the screen. The only way they, that could have possibly been true is if they saw it on the screen before it went offline. Yes. Right. So in other words, they saw the name on the screen, somehow dutifully noted that down and then turned off and disabled the phone and then waited 24 hours to do anything else. Really weird, right? So anyway, they then went on to uh, a, a social media service, looked up that person, found that they were a, a fellow student, right? got in touch with them and basically brought the phone uh, you know, uh, arranged to like, oh, I'll leave the phone here at the front desk and you can come pick it up. Um, and then it got back. So that's just really weird in a lot of ways because, no oh, and also there was a little tiny bit of information that, oh, sorry, I accidentally turned the phone off. To turn an iPhone off, there's only one way. You press the side button and the volume up button at the same time. Right. The screen that appears has all sorts of things you can do, like SOS and all of right, this, right. and a slider across the top to slide off the phone. I don't know how you could possibly accidentally turn the phone off, <laughs> but even if you did, simply turning it back on would have revealed at one point, you know, just general stuff on the phone and would have then notified us that, hey, the phone's alive again and it's located here. But later on, when I said erase it, it would have actually showed my phone number on it because that's what I said to put on the the phone. But Ah, none of that happened. None of that happened. So when it got returned, was it in that erased state? Yes, it was in that erased state. It was basically locked up. And it's really weird. It says that its phone is locked. It can only be unlocked by, and it shows a truncated version of the Apple ID. Um, But I I tell you, it it cannot be unlocked. Really? Yeah. So it's a little misleading of a message. It's like, no, nothing can unlock this phone is dead. When I called the insurance company and said, we found the phone. Is there anything I could do? They said, "Uh, you have a nice paperweight now, but there's nothing. I was like, do you want it? (laughs) It technically is your property now. And they said, we don't want it. Feel free to recycle it or do whatever you want with it. Take it to the shooting range. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that came up. You know, see how a bullet will pass through it. But <laughs> the um, so it's just it's the whole thing is very suspicious as to what it actually what this phone that I have now went through during approximately 36 hours of time to, so to at end some up back. point when at some point the phone had to be turned on again. Yeah. Yeah. In order to um, get that self-destruct message. Yeah. Did it report a position at that time? Nope. It didn't. And that's just very weird because my experience yeah. with find my iPhone and all the different things is that it works 
flawlessly, right? right, right. It's not that hard. It's not like it's that there are that many steps, not, not that many if-then statements in there <laughs> to figure out what's going on. So it's just really weird that it didn't. And only when I heard that the phone had been suddenly had suddenly appeared, I went and I looked and it, it, it that's another weird thing. It shows me the location of the phone. If I look in find my, mm-hmm. and I'm the only one in the family group that could see it mm-hmm. and I could see its location, which makes it a really expensive, bad air tag <laughs> bad because <laughs> of the battery because the battery, you know, if I turn it on and leave it in that locked state, I can right. actually figure out where it is. And, and much of the same way an air tag can be used, but that big, big battery in it will, will, will go dead in a couple of days. Right. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a tracking device. That's really poor. I don't know. Um, it, it's, it's a very odd thing. I don't know if we'll ever find out exactly what happened. Uh, there's more parts to the story. It's just all mystery because it, it just disappeared, reappeared. And I, I don't know my, uh, what I regret doing, I regret doing a couple things. One is that, uh, it, the lesson to be learned is if the phone isn't in your possession, or you don't, you know, maybe if you have a friend that says, I have it, it's right here. I put it in my desk drawer. I know where it is. And that's fine. But if you don't know where it is, immediately go to lost mode, right? Mm-hmm. Just go and then it'll display a phone number on there. It will notify, you'll get notifications, all sorts of stuff. We didn't do that because we didn't think the phone was really lost at the beginning. Right. right. Um, I think and- a lot of people, a lot of people would make that assumption it's not so much lost as it is misplaced yes misplaced right? oh yeah no, I, I, I'm I, I sure it's it here. Kitchen, i left it in the kitchen i left it work or yeah. fell in the couch or any of those kinds of things yeah right going into lost mode is easy to undo you know you go you know you find the phone you, you have to go into your apple id and you know on your mac or some yeah. other device and you say yeah i found it take it out of lost mode and it's fine yeah i should have put it into lost mode immediately right and now you know, I, I know that, yeah, if, if I think if I think I left my phone, somewhere, even if I would like, I left to leave a restaurant and then I call and they say, yeah, we have your phone here. Um, we're closing now. You can pick it up at 9 a.m. We open. I would put it into lost mode right there. I'd like just put it into lost mode immediately. I think it would have been much better off if that had happened. Um, the other thing is, is that I would not trigger the play the sound unless I am physically like right where the dot is and find uh, my iPhone. Right, right. You know, because the idea being here that it was a little miscommunication. It was like we didn't look closely enough at the dot. We thought the dot was near somebody else who knew who was close by. Turns right, out it right, wasn't. Right. It was yeah. another part of the building. We should have confirmed that. Don't have don't have it play that sound. Um, yeah, because it's like, it, 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 yeah, it's a weird. It's a weird, weird situation. And I do, I, I am trying to think about what to do with this phone. Um, probably end up just recycling it. Um, I I don't know. It's, if, it could be there, interesting. Would there be any anything interesting? I'm just thinking of, you know, content for Mac most. Would there be anything interesting? Take it apart. Say, no. Take it apart. Yeah. Just video taking it apart. Yeah. Just because. You, you ever wonder what's inside your iPhone? Well, here's one. Here's one. I, it's a brick. Yeah, I saw a site the other day that was selling deconstructed iPhones. So this is a picture frame with glass, and the iPhone was taken apart and laid out as like a diagram. 
And oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Those were selling for like two, three hundred bucks, and they were for things like the iPhone four, iPhone five, iPhone six. They obviously acquired iPhones that were cheap or free. Now I have a bunch of older iPhones like that already. But, you know, the thing is that those actually work. I mean, if I wanted ah, to, right. you know, I mean, not that I pull. Oh, I, I have a use for an iPhone 4, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, this could be something. Obviously, right. it doesn't make a difference if it's locked, if you're taking it apart and putting it in a nice frame like that. You can make art um, from it, yeah. But, you know, I, I could I could actually take it apart, make it a nice piece of art be on the wall, or I could take it apart, make it a nice piece of art and sell it on Etsy. There you go. <laughs> there, That might be like the best... That might be the best way to legitimately make money from it. You know, the other way is I could try to sell it as a, you know, sell it for parts to one of those same shops, like yes. I talked about <laughs> earlier. And, 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 you know, the funny thing would be like, and this, this was no, this, I own this phone, right? This is like legit and Very have the good. guy behind a little <laughs> wink. Yeah. No, no, no. I totally, it's legit. Don't worry about it. I got you. And I'm like, no, no, really? Yes. And I'm like, no, no. But I mean, I can't imagine you make more than the cost than the cost of whatever the replacement part is for a screen. Right. So maybe a deconstructed iPhone, if you, if I was at the time, <laughs> be the way to make money off of it. Or make a YouTube video where you know I like I shoot something through it or uh you know, do something to destroy blend it. <laughs> Will it blend? Will it blend? Well, that means you have to give up a blender too, right? I mean, you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. So then, you know, but then the idea is, could I make, you know, more than $200 on a on a YouTube video uh, showing an iPhone getting somehow destroyed? Um, such a there, weird... So this is one heck, of a, one heck of a tangent, but there is a YouTube channel. I'm sure you've seen the hydraulic press channel, right? Yeah, yeah. Where they put things There's, in a yeah. hydraulic press and compress. There are industrial strength shredders. Oh yeah, and those are really therapeutic to watch. And I, 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 I if you had one available, that would be a video that would probably get you a few views. <laughs> All right, you're yeah. really frustrated with your iPhone. Well, here, <laughs> assume, imagine this is your iPhone, and watch it disappear into a lot of little tiny pieces. I once had somebody told me about a. Uh, beyond a shredder, even beyond that, that was used by military intelligence. <laughs> that was a, it was like the size of a refrigerator and you could stick paper, you could stick a hard drive. It didn't matter what you stuck in there and you closed it and you turned it on. And basically fine particles of dust uh, <laughs> came out of the other end of whatever it is that you put inside right. of it. I like it. I yeah. Like it. it was like a really ultimate. I think, I think even if you put paper in there, I don't think hardly any, any smoke came out the top and that was yeah. it. There was like right. nothing else, but like a hard drive would create like these fine toxic particles of dust that would come out the other end and that you would have cross to cut shredding just isn't enough. No, no. Yeah. When it comes to like, yeah, you really want to make sure it's done right. Oh, let's anyway. see. So I wanted to talk a little bit about something I've been playing with. Um, yeah. And that is, um, as you and I both do uh, for our videos, we do a lot of screen recording and then also you know, video recording of ourselves talking at a camera or something like that. For the longest time, yeah. I have been using, for years, literally for years, I've been using Camtasia to do this. Now I know you, on the Mac side, you've got a lot of tools that are basically just built in. Um, on the Windows side, it's not quite that simple. So you end up having to go to third-party tools to do some of this kind of stuff. Camtasia has been an awesome tool. I've used it for many, many years. And I still continue to use it in some contexts. Um, it's a great, one of the things that it's good at is it's a 
it's a nice middle of the road video editor. Uh-huh. So I've actually recommended Camtasia to people who aren't looking for screen recording. They're just looking for an editor that they that 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 isn't Adobe Premiere or isn't some of the other high-end stuff um, that doesn't require that same level of, of cognitive investment, we'll call it, that uh, you know, learning curve to in order to use. So I've been doing sure. that for many, many years. The folks that make Camtasia. Uh, TechSmith, they also make a tool called Snagit. Snagit mm-hmm. is essentially a, a screen capture. You take screenshots, and yep. you know, often people have asked, "How do I get the torn edge effect on my on my some of the screenshots I have?" And that's what I use. I use Snagit. It does that all automatically. You can throw callouts on your images. You can put you know um, shadows behind them. All sorts of nifty things. It's a, it's actually uh, one of the tools that I probably use the most often, uh, almost every day, for various various things. A couple of versions ago, they added video recording to Snagit, hmm. which I thought, okay, well, yeah, that's kind of cool, but I've got Camtasia, so I don't need that. I don't need to look at that. I forget why, but a couple of weeks ago, I decided to try doing a screen record using the Snagit recorder instead of the Camtasia recorder. Uh-huh. And I figured, okay, you know... Their, their focus is screenshots. So if there's probably like a, a five-second limitation or, or some limitation. That, no, there's, not, there's, there's no limitations. And in huh. fact, it's a little bit easier than Camtasia's because um, I recorded like a two-hour meeting with the thing. And huh. it, it snaps to your window size easily, which Camtasia does kind of sort of. Um, it, uh, it seems to, because it's different technology, it looks like it picks different windows to assume are the size of your thing. Uh, So like when you hover over a window, it automatically snaps to the size of that window. In windows, do you snap to the content or do you snap to the, you know, to the, including the menus and the border around it, that kind of stuff. Those decisions are a little bit different between the two tools. But the big thing for me is that it just dumps it out into MP4, whereas Camtasia dumps it out into the Camtasia editor internal format that you then first have to process before you can use it as a tool. So it actually removes a step. All of a sudden, I just got raw video of my screenshot. Now, I've also been using of my screen video, right? Like an hour or two's worth of video. Um, I've been using for a long time now OBS to do my camera recording. Uh-huh. OBS is Open Broadcast System, I think it's called. Yep. Or yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, it's an open source uh, tool that is designed to do to take. Um, uh, basically, it mimics a broadcast studio in the sense that you can have multiple inputs and you can fade between them and you can do picture in picture and you can do this, that or the other thing. Uh, and so uh, that's what I would be using to record my uh, my head, my talking head, uh, just because it was a very easy tool to do that with. I could set it up. I could actually switch back and forth between a couple of things if I wanted to. And it also supports streaming. So if I, whenever I do a YouTube live stream, it's uh, you, it's uh, OBS that is feeding uh-huh. YouTube, or it's OBS that's feeding Facebook. Uh, so those two things, all of a sudden, I've got a much simpler solution. I've got an MP4 out of OBS with my talking head, and I've got an MP4 out of Snagit with the video, and I just put them together in my video editor, which I'll talk about in a second. So there are two things that, um, so like I said, Snagit, turned out to be actually a pretty cool tool for video capture, even though it's positioned as a, uh, a screenshot capture. 
I've started playing with DaVinci Resolve. Uh Now, DaVinci Resolve is a video editing program that uh, is extremely popular. It's actually used by some TV shows and movies and other production facilities, uh, which kind of implies that, of course, yes, it's kind of complicated, right? There's a lot under the hood. But the neat thing about it is that the base version is incredibly powerful and free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anybody can grab it. Anybody can use it. Anybody can do some really, really powerful video editing stuff. So I started playing with that. The remaining problem that I want that I've been trying to solve for a long time is that I've got a couple of webcams. You've probably got a couple of cams hooked up at the same time. So I can do um, either two different angles on myself, or I could do myself and have an overhead shot of a, of a piece of technology, like maybe an iPhone that I was in the process of destroying. Uh, that So I could switch between the two. But th- I had no way to record them simultaneously and do the switching in edit rather than live, right? Because OBS would only output, only outputs one video stream. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so you have in. to do your you have to do your switching in real time. Yeah. Except stay with me here. Yeah. If I'm producing an HD video, mm-hmm. 1920 by 1080, and I've got two, maybe three inputs. Mm-hmm. One way to simulate what I'm looking for is to configure OBS to record a 4K video, 3820 by, what is it? 2160. 2160, yeah. But put each of the inputs in a different quadrant on that screen. Mm-hmm. So I'd have a single HD input from camera one. in the. Oh, upper yeah, I see, yeah. A single HD input from camera two in the upper right. Uh, maybe a screen record, which OBS does as well, um, down in the lower case in the lower place. So what I end up with there is a very large MP4 file, but it's got everything. And then I can do all of my switching in real t- in, in post, as they say, right? which allows me to make all of the choices. And of course, since there's one audio track, it's all automatically synced because it's just one recording. So anyway, that's what I've been playing with. Um, it's super geeky uh, for, for folks that are into doing video. Um, it, it definitely hits the enthusiast checkbox for me because I'm having a lot of fun with this stuff. Um, and it's one of those things where I'm, I'm the kind of person that needs to change things up every once in a while mm-hmm. to stay motivated. Yeah, you know no, I, I definitely mean? hear you there. Yeah, I hear it's you like, there. Yeah. You know, I, it's like last year I moved to AWS for my server not because I needed to move, not because I wanted to, you know, there was a problem with my existing host. No, I wanted to learn AW. Well, now I'm in the process of, okay, let's do my video editing in DaVinci and let's see if we can't do multicam live kind of stuff and see what happens. And that's what I'm playing with. I'm having fun with it. Yeah, no, I, I know the feeling. I try to introduce all sorts of new things all the time, try new techniques. Uh, I've done that within the last few months. Um, yeah, the uh, DaVinci Resolve is a good option on the Mac as well. Yes, you know, it is multi-platform. It, I think they do. I think they do Linux also. Yeah, and it's in between. You know, on the Mac, it fits in between iMovie and Final Cut, right? Actually, you know, DaVinci Resolve Studio 
is you know trying to you know compete directly with Final Cut and, and Adobe Premiere yep. at, at, at the same price, yeah, yeah. <laughs> three hundred bucks. Yeah. So, but you know, and the idea is to eventually resolve the the free one that competes with iMovie, except that I, you know, it's, I, I'm not an expert at DaVinci Resolve, but mm-hmm. I gather it's more capable than iMovie. It, um, it probably, it definitely looks like it has multiple layers, which iMovie right. does not. Right. Um, so, you know, you've got that. Um, I haven't played, I should play around with it a little bit more. Snagit, I actually used to use uh, for when I used to do write books. Um, I used to use it for a while to take the screenshots that were then needed to mm-hmm. go into the books, mm-hmm. the, of course, then I started doing books on the iPad and I needed iPad screenshots, right. um, which was a whole other thing. And also my publisher was a stickler for like, this is how we want the screenshots to be marked up and doing it in snag. It was like, was not hard, but it wasn't easy either. Like if I could have dictated to them, here's how I want to mark up my screenshots. Right. I could have done it the snag it way and been like, super easy but because i had to conform to their way i actually wrote my own software <laughs> to, to take screenshots and you know it was it was like clunky and it like yeah it worked on my mac and that was it like right. you know it, it wasn't even it didn't even it wasn't even a standalone app it's like it still ran on the development platform and all but that's all i needed was like i just need to take a screenshot and i need to be able to click one two three four Put the little thing, put it in a list, and then boom, and, you know I've got the whole like the format down. Um, whereas doing it in Snagit was like, oh yeah, beautiful tool with a million features, but right. I need to do this specific thing, and it was a pain. But it was a nice tool; I, I enjoyed using it. Um, and I've used a few others as well over the uh, the years. Uh, Apple has really come up a, a bunch now. There's the screenshot tool. Um, there's a thing called Markup that's part of Mac OS mm-hmm. that allows you to do you could mark up photos with all sorts of different tools um, and you could do it in the photos app, the photo management software. You could do mm-hmm. it in preview using PDFs or images. You could do it in the screenshot tool. You could do it in notes. It's like they've taken this one piece and they've placed it everywhere. So now with the screenshot, you can take a screenshot and immediately go into markup mode and do a lot of cool things. Right. And it's right. all built into the system, which is, which is kind of nice. I've done some videos on that pretty recently too. Yeah. So. Yeah, very cool. I just it it just surprised me that you know Snagit has matured over the years. I just love the idea of you writing your own software. You know, it sounds like the the oh, yeah. wire approach that I think we've all been. Where it doesn't have to look pretty, it doesn't have to be professional. It just has to work long enough to solve the problem. Exactly, and I used it for about like six or seven years, and you and it was great because um, you know when I got to that last book and they said, oh yeah, this you know we're not going to be doing it again next year. I thought, yes, that piece of software I wrote, like it would have all been in vain if I would have had to just do something else for like the last book, then I might as well have done that at the beginning. Right. But it lasted till the end (laughs) finished (laughs) and I could put that software away. It's like archived. I don't need, I'll never need it again. Um, But it was nice as opposed. And also to like talking about OBS and having like the multi camera capture thing. Yeah. It would be nice if at one point you could actually do the multiple channels um, but I do like your solution. I wasn't sure if you could do that on a Mac right now or not. On Windows, you actually have to go buy third-party software to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm using ScreenFlow, you know, the Camtasia competitor to right. to to accomplish all of that, and everything goes nicely to tracks. But I do like your solution of having multiple cameras and having a big like quadrants 
of the the screen like that yeah. um, as a way to uh, to get it done. It works. Yep. 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 Okay. Well, actually, you know that all was pretty cool, but. Um, <laughs> yes, we do. We do have another section here of the show called Ain't It Cool? So what we've been watching lately is what this typically has boiled down to in the last yeah. few weeks. Um, last week, I talked about Raised by Wolves. Mm-hmm. And this week uh, on HBO, uh, HBO or HBO Plus, uh, this week I'm mentioning Peacemaker when I think it's um, the final episode of its season probably drops tonight if it didn't drop last night. So. My description of the two is that these are like at opposite ends of the HBO Max spectrum. Huh. Um, uh, Raised by Wolves is very, it's a think piece. The idea is to get you to think about the relationship of AI to humanity, to religion, to space, mm. you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and and it's, it's a ve- I find it a very fascinating, very interesting thing but you approach it with a different mindset than you would say Peacemaker. Peacemaker is a comic book movie. It's from the DC universe. Uh, the DC universe, for those who don't do comic books, is the universe that has Batman and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and all those kind of people, along with what I'll call the second tier or maybe the third tier, quote unquote, superheroes, <laughs> like yeah. um, you know, from Suicide Squad. Doom uh, Patrol. Doom Patrol. That's those my favorite, films, yeah. yeah. Um, so Peacemaker happens to be a character that was in the most recent Suicide Squad. Uh, he's not that bright is the best way to put it. And, uh-huh. but, but he's a good guy. What was it? His, his line is something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, I'm going, I'm, I'm working towards peace if I have to kill everybody to do it. And <laughs> honestly, this is one of those shows where if you don't like bloodshed, if you don't like gratuitous violence, if you don't like, um, you know, guts being splattered on a screen or on a floor, uh, this may not be for you. On the other hand, if you just want to throw your suspension of disbelief out the window and um, have a have a fun time, listen to a lot of in-jokes, uh, and uh, it's an aliens thing, right? There's aliens invading the world, and you know he and his ragtag team of of misfits have to save the world. Uh, presumably, they're going to save the world tonight. And it's it's just fun. It's it's a one a one thing to uh, uh, to just sort of watch and enjoy. Now, I will say, even if you don't watch the show, even if what I've just described holds no appeal to you at all. Watch the opening credits uh, of any episode. And in fact, it's on YouTube. I'll see if I can't look up a YouTube a link and include that in the show notes. The opening credits are, I'll just say bizarre. They are not what you expect out of a out of a comic book movie, out of a superhero story, um, out of a sci-fi, anything. Uh, it's essentially a dance number, but it's really bizarre. And it fits the character of the show perfectly. In a in just just this very bizarre way, so I'll hopefully have a link for that because it is on YouTube. I have to share that with a couple of other people already, um, and I've been having fun watching that. And that'll wrap up tonight. Cool. Yeah, I've I've caught up on Raised by Wolves. I enjoyed the first season very much. Mm-hmm. The second season, I'm completely confused as to what is going on. It takes uh, a while to get back into it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm like, I, I did I miss an episode? Was there an episode between the first season? And the I, I had that same feeling. I basically, don't it's, know it's, what's happening. It's a case of time passed, 
right? It's like there's there's some time that's passed since the end of the last season, and they kind of sort of explain some things. But yeah, I I, I, I have that yeah. exact same Ooh. feeling. Yeah, confusing. But I am watch. I did finish watching a uh, interesting series called Archive Eighty One on Netflix, um, which uh, starts off. It's about a, a video archivist in uh, New York City who is, uh, you know, basically would take old videotapes that are damaged and you know restore them. Um, and he's hired by a mysterious client uh, to uh, do a mysterious project of restoring some some tapes, um, and uh, it doesn't. It goes in all sorts of different directions after that. Uh, it is. I usually don't like things that have supernatural elements in them. Okay. But when it gets weird enough, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's purely ghosts. Or something like that, you know. Um, I don't like it, but when it's like there's weird cult and some strange history, and nobody's really sure, and things happen that can't be explained, then then I start to get interested. And that uh, and this really has a lot of weird stuff like that in there. So Archive eighty one is is really interesting. So Netflix. The closest thing that I keep saying every week is to, to an ad on our show, since we have no sponsors, is that we are self-sponsored. It's our blatant self-promotion. This week, I'd like to point people at Am I Safe? This is one of those articles that actually rose out of frustration. One of the things that I started seeing when I posted a couple of a couple of very specific videos actually out on YouTube is I would get responses or comments from people saying, hey, I did this, I did that, or this is the case, or that is the case. Am I safe now? And the answer is always no, you're not safe. There's no such thing as safe. And I think that's a very, very important thing. It's not an absolute. I know that we all want black and white answers. We all want yes or no, mm. uh, safe or not safe. But you should never, ever consider yourself as being safe. Anyway, I go into that in more detail. It's in Am I Safe? It's askleo.com slash 142753. Cool. Uh, one of the things about Macs that people always seem curious about is the keyboard. Um, I think it's because the rest of the PC world has very specific keyboard stuff. And Mac has kind of its own little language on the keyboard command key and an option key and an fn or now it's called a globe key and all of that and i did a video years ago talking about the mac keyboard and bring you up to speed on on uh yeah because people tend to like if they especially if they switch from windows to mac mm -hmm. they tend to figure out how to get along and then go years and years still being like curious as to what does this mean on the <laughs> on the keyboard that i'm using every day so i did one years ago that was really successful on that but the keyboard's actually undergone some changes recently so i thought i'd update that so i have a link to the, my getting to know the mac keyboard video i swear one of the problems i have switching platforms from time to time is just you know command versus control and it's yep. not that they mean different things they kind of sort of mean the same thing it's that they are in opposite places on the keyboard and I'm always hitting the wrong one for the system I happen to be typing on. So, yep, I've uh, my MacBook Pro, my M1 MacBook Pro has at the bottom left the FN or globe key as it's known and next to that control at the bottom left-hand corner. My mm -hmm. Mac extended keyboard that's from my Mac Pro has control at the bottom left-hand corner. So, I've I've basically learn to i don't know somehow you're feeling my it. pain is what you're telling me <laughs> oh no i mean i've gotten i've gotten good i rarely make the mistake like i just know 
which one I'm on. I mean, I guess because it's a very different experience, but you know, using the laptop and the screens there, and it's a you know, your hands are resting on the machine itself and all that. And the trackpad's in the middle underneath, whereas opposed to the trackpad being to the right. And I'm at my desk. And I don't know. It's it is interesting that there's a fundamental difference between these two Apple keyboards, yet I somehow don't ever mess up. Hmm. Oh well. Proud of proud of yep. I think that pretty much wraps us up for this week. Yep. The show notes are at tehpodcast.com slash teh156. You've got a comment or a question for us. You can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at the TEH podcast, or you can always leave us a comment in the show notes page. We absolutely see, read, and and, and, and react to every one of them. Yes. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we will see you here again next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.